Locked off. Everybody. Welcome back to the Pixel Advocate. We are still live over here. I know it's been a while since um, I've released any episodes. It's, um, you know, no excuses other than just usual real life stuff. A lot of work around the house, a lot of uh, projects that I was uh, trying to wrap up. Oh, uh, we're doing some renovations and um, some big family events to plan for and, and things like that. So it really ate into my available time wrapping up the summer there here we are all the way into fall that's okay um, one of the projects I was working on was a built a a bar to um, kind of serve my well part of the reason for building it was to have a place to and a means of serving my beer that I brew here at home I um, have it uh, on draft, it's you know, it's in small five gallon kegs, and I have uh six taps, which is way more than is needed. But um, we, you haven't guessed, uh, host a lot of social gatherings uh, at this house, so it's uh, it's good for that. And um, actually, one of the things I did was I put a TV screen above the bar at the back and that is used uh, well among other functions it's used for displaying the beer list using a it has an Amazon Fire Stick in it and it has a, a free app on there that's designed specifically for this purpose it's, it's great it works great uh, but none of that TV's up there um, of course I can also use it for other things as well so I had the foresight to wire in some connections for external video sources. So I've got a old tablet um, hidden away there in the bar that is hooked up to that TV and is all set up with emulators. Uh, and I've got some PlayStation 3 controllers that I had lying around kind of collecting dust. And I'm able to interface those to this tablet, which is just a Windows 10 tablet using um, a device called a, a Mayflash adapter. So it's just a USB dongle that plugs into the, the tablet, and it allows me to quickly and easily interface my PlayStation 3 cordless controllers, which is the whole allure here, uh, not only to make use of some hardware I already had sitting around, but to um, not have cords laying across the floor, which is great. And so I've loaded up... RetroArch, which is a very popular and common emulator that I'm sure most of you have heard about if you're into emulation. And I'd, I'd heard, uh, one thing I don't like about RetroArch is it's kind of, I don't know, the interface for it is is not the best, I mean, in terms of how you interact with it. I mean, it is nice that you're able to, to use it 
completely with a controller without having to use a keyboard. But it still, in my opinion, leaves a lot to be desired. So um, I decided to try LaunchBox, which is a very, very slick and easy to use front end that I've uh, I've heard about, seen some videos about it and things like that. It looked really promising, so I thought I'd give it a try. And it, it is really great. Uh, it works very, very well with RetroArch. I mean, it can be used with other emulators as well, but I think RetroArch is kind of what they had in mind because RetroArch is very nicely integrated into this. And it really, I mean, it's it uh, it scrapes all the metadata from the internet for you. So you load in your your ROMs, and it it brings in the picture files, and you know it takes a long time to, to download all this stuff, but it does it just does it all automatically. And um, it's just a bit of waiting, really. But it um, LaunchBox is unfortunately requires you to use a keyboard and mouse, um, but they do offer the, um, the free version requires a keyboard and mouse, but they do offer a paid upgrade. It wasn't very much. I think it was $20. And that gets you the so-called big box mode. It activates this feature. that kind of changes the interface to be more geared toward using um, a controller to navigate the menus. You don't need to interact with a mouse or keyboard or anything. So it's kind of needed if you're going to be sitting on a couch or um, you know, maybe an arcade cabinet or something like that. Whereas if you're just sitting at your computer desk, I mean, who cares if you have to use your computer or if you have to use your um, um, keyboard and mouse because it's sitting right there anyway. But if you want to be sitting on a away from the computer, you want to be sitting on a chair or a couch or something, then it's really, really nice to be able to navigate everything with just a controller. And um, that's what this does, and it does it beautifully. So basically I just use the the basic launch box mode to do all the importing of the ROMs and emulators and configuring everything that I want to play and then to switch it to big box mode and then the interface trying to kind of changes a little bit and uh, it's usable with strictly the PlayStation controllers. So it's, I've been having a lot of fun with that um, to sit in my bar area there in the nice chairs, get a beer and go through thousands upon thousands of console games. Um, there's just, well, there's just too much. But anyway, that's kind of some of the things I've been up to. Um, we're back here with another lists episode, so without further ado, let's get rolling. This list is going to be called "Favorite Console Games of All Time That Are Not Arcade Ports." So, I think in a lot of cases, this is just going to be. You know, console, home console, original type stuff that did not originate in the arcade. And I think the reason why I'm drawing that distinction and leaving out arcade ports is because they, by definition, they're trying to kind of strive towards some pre-existing standard rather than just being a game in their own right. And depending on the different capabilities of different hardware platforms and everything they're going to succeed at achieving those games at different levels of success and this and that so it's just it becomes and the waters are a bit too murky on that so i decided to just kind of make it games that are not arcade ports so some other criteria what we'll get a game on this list and it's gonna be a top 10 by the way 
Um, the game has to have, for me, a demonstrated um, lasting power. So, what does that mean? That means I liked it at some point in time. Lots of time passed. I still liked it. Lots of more time passed. I still liked it. In other words, it for me, in my opinion, it ages well. I continue to enjoy it for a long stretch of time rather than it just being enjoyed for a short period of time, you know, back in the 80s, for example. So there's that. Um, obviously, the next, you know, this next one's obvious. It doesn't even really need to be stated, but it has to be a big favorite of mine, either back in the 80s or 90s, or now. I guess the reason I point that out is because I'm saying that um, games that that may be old but may may also be new to me that I've discovered in fairly recent times are still eligible for this list. Um, another one is kind of just a gut feeling. Like, you know how when somebody talks about, well, name three of your favorite games, and then there's just, there might be a, a couple titles that just, out of your own gut feeling, just immediately come to mind. You don't really know why, you haven't really processed what criteria you're using, but they just come to you. And if that happens for me, for a game, then it gets at points for this list. Just because it's just kind of this feeling that, you know, it's it's one of your favorites. And lastly, um, I, I intentionally put this last because I, I try to be wary of it, is it's nostalgia. I mean, some people are all about nostalgia with playing retro games. I, you know, everyone is a li- at least a little bit. I uh, try to keep that in check. I, I don't, I prefer to look for games that I enjoy today on their own merits, not just because I enjoyed them when I was eight years old. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but I just find that it's difficult to chase being eight years old again. <laughs> I don't really have any desire to do that. What I want to do is find games that have characteristics that I like and I can enjoy today and that I can explore today. And, um, and I'm always looking for new ones and I'm always finding new ones. I mean, for years I've been regularly finding new ones. So those are the criteria. So let's get started. Number 10, we've got Batman by Sunsoft on the Sega Genesis, released in 1991. Now, this one is, if you've played this game, I think there's a good to fair chance you're going to be wrinkling your nose of going, really? This made your list? And that's fair. I admit the game is not you know, the, the the game mechanics, they're not very original or groundbreaking. Um, it's, uh, there's nothing particularly noteworthy about this game, I would think, in a lot of people's eyes. But for me, the reason I like it is, well, there's a few reasons. Um, one criticism I've seen against this game is that it's, it's not very challenging. And it's kind of easy. Um, and you know what? I think in this, in the case of this game, that kind of plays in its favor for me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fairly decent player. I mean, I, I can take a challenging game. Um, but in some cases I just, something, you know, especially with platform type games, too challenging can lead to 
frustrating, especially when you're a full-grown adult and you just don't have the time to, you know, figure out how to do impossible things in video games. So this one also has, um, for me, the benefit of kind of, it does a really good job of evoking kind of the, the mood and the colors and the, the feel of the 1989 Tim Burton Batman movie, which is, you know, a childhood favorite of mine and one I still really, really enjoy to this day with Jack Nicholson as the Joker and Michael Keaton as Batman. I just really, really like that movie. I like the aesthetic of it. I like, you know, the vibe of it. It's just, you know, it's really cool. And I think the, the Genesis game does a really good job of channeling some of those characteristics into a 16-bit video game. Um, the the music in this game is 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 really good. I really enjoy it. Uh, almost every screen has a, has a very enjoyable um, soundtrack to it. Um, one of my favorites, and the um, it follows the movie kind of sorta. I mean, some of the a lot of the scenes that are in the game are clearly based on scenes from the movie, and it, you know it's it's stated as such. The game itself is really just a you know a platform kind of beat 'em up game where it's it's 2D. You know you can't walk into or out of the screen. You've just got some basic moves like punching and kicking and throwing um, boomerangs, and you've got like a grappling hook that'll allow you to climb. Um, but then you get a little further into the game and you get to uh, drive the Batmobile, and then there's a screen where you get to fly the uh, the Batwing in the skies, and it's got you know like Joker's balloons and stuff like that i don't know just um while i can definitely understand how a lot of you know diehard gamers would look at this game as kind of just vanilla it's it it somehow managed to make the list for me um and i, and I say that sincerely number nine is slight maybe slightly anomalous on this list uh since i'm more of a 80s 90s retro 80s early 90s retro type guy but um it's going to be twisted metal 2 for the sony playstation the original sony playstation 1996 this game is i think it's it's probably pretty famous as far as playstation games go it's um it's what they call like the vehicular combat games where you where you pick one of several vehicles uh, each of which is piloted by some character that has this ridiculous backstory and they're in this deathmatch tournament where all these vehicles are in some kind of environment and they're driving around launching rockets and throwing bombs and special weapons at each other and just blowing stuff up first time i ever heard of this game was in a i was leafing through uh it was probably an egm magazine electronic game monthly or something similar uh, right after I got my PlayStation in the, um, I guess it would be summer of 97 or so. I think I told that story before. And it just, it got a really good review, I remember, and it was, it just sounded really fun. I um, Then I, I think I got my hands on a demo disc. They used to give those out with uh, PlayStations. And I think there was a demo of, of Twisted Metal 2 on one of those discs. So I got a taste of it, and I thought... This is really fun. So I went and bought it. Actually, I think I rented it at first. And uh, a friend of mine, who um, who sadly is uh, 
is no longer around. He um, he passed uh, going on ten years ago now. Um, but back then, he he and I were real, uh, you know, partners in crime and, and playing uh, PlayStation games, and uh, we both really really enjoyed Twisted Metal too. Um, like I said, it's just ridiculous, over the top carnage. You're just driving around. It's got this. Um, you know, rock and roll soundtrack and great explosion noises and, and things of that sort. Highly, highly recommend it if you, if you, on the odd chance you are not actually familiar with this game and you are interested in PlayStation era games, definitely have to check this one out. Um, notice how I said it's Twisted Metal 2, uh, which means, of course, that there's a, a predecessor game. Um, after playing this one, I went back and found the original game, and it was okay, but I didn't like it nearly as much. But even more concerning was, you know, a couple of years later, my roommate, when I was in university, um, bought Twisted Metal 3 when it came out, which was also on the original PlayStation. And I thought it was terrible. I don't know. And, and in fact, there have been several other Twisted Metal games, up to and including on the PlayStation 3, which looks really nice, has some really nice graphics and everything. But for me, they were just never able to capture the magic of Twisted Metal 2. I don't know what they were getting wrong. I, I, I can't really describe it, but they, they've just... The controls are slightly different um, in a lot of cases. The, the, the explosions just don't sound as cool. It's just all this combination of factors where... Even on the games that came later that had better visuals, the, the gameplay was just never, was just never recaptured. But Twisted Metal 2, for me, is the high-water mark in that series. I do think part of the reason is somewhere along the way, the studio that was responsible for making Twisted Metal 2, they sold the rights or lost the rights or something like that, and it got moved to some different developer house. I don't know the details of that, something along those lines, but I think that's part of it. So in other words, the, the, you know, the, the team that was behind making Twisted Metal 2 so great, they were taken off the job, so that kind of... You know, takes away the uh, the skill that made it great in the first place. Number eight, Ninja Gaiden, on the NES by Tecmo, 1989. Now, this game is difficult, <laughs> at times frustrating. Um, I'm sure most everybody is familiar with this one who uh, isn't a fan of the NES basically a side-scrolling kind of um, it's almost like Castlevania turned up to 11 you know it's a little faster paced uh, 2d a lot of jumping and you know uh, sticking onto walls and doing backflips and grabbing um, throwing weapons and um, a lot of cheap deaths you know I think one of the things this game is kind of famous for is where you make a jump, and then you take out an enemy, and then you take a step off the screen in the reverse direction, and then you step back, and the enemy's just there again. And then you just keep getting hit, and you get, whenever you get hit with something, you get um, slung backwards, and then sometimes you'll land uh, in, a, you know, in a pit and die. You know, very frustrating. Uh, the game did give you unlimited continues, so you were able to at least keep trying and trying and trying. Um, I think one of the things this game is famous for is it introduced the epic cutscene between screens 
um, you know, back then that was, to me, I thought that was so amazingly cool, um, which is funny because I think cutscenes are a drag nowadays, but um, back then it was a novelty to see all those bright cartoonish graphics on the screen and everything, so this game was definitely groundbreaking in that regard, at least in my eyes. And one thing I, I didn't really know about this game was I always assumed that... No, actually, let me take a step back here. So, I said earlier that this is going to be all console original games and no ports. Well, some of you might be saying, well, hang on a second, there's a Ninja Gaiden arcade game. That's true, but the reason why this game is still on this list is because of something that I didn't know back then, um, which is, you know, back then I I assumed that the NES game was different from the arcade game. Like the the play mechanics are completely different. The arcade game is a is like a beat 'em up game. It's like a a really really bad Double Dragon or or that that, that type of game. The, the game is awful. I, I don't like it at all. But the arcade game that is. Um, and this game is completely different gameplay. It doesn't even remotely resemble uh, the arcade in anything but name. And I always assumed the reason for that was that the programmers looked at the arcade game and figured that the it would be too challenging to program that game on NES hardware, so they took a different route with it and made a, a side-scrolling platformer instead. No, in retrospect, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there are side-scrolling platformers on the NES. Some of them are pretty decent, too. So that assumption, needless to say, not only appears wrong, but is wrong. Um, what I read in the meantime was that the two games were actually developed in parallel. They're both by Tecmo, but they're developed in parallel by di completely different teams. So one didn't precede the other. They were developed in parallel. And um, I think the, the Ninja Gaiden for NES was actually supposed to have some other theme to it. But the marketing department realized that quote-unquote ninjas were this big thing in the U.S. market. So they decided to kind of rework the game to be a ninja game. And they came up with uh, Ninja Gaiden. I can't remember what the name Ninja Gaiden means, um, but... I seem to remember reading the translation of it, and it's it's like meaningless. It doesn't really mean anything cool. And when asked why they used that name, the the they pretty much answered, "Well, because it sounds cool." So, <laughs> hope I didn't ruin anybody's childhood with that. But that's what I read. Number seven, Mega Man Two on the NES by Capcom, nineteen eighty-eight. Now this game, I mean. I don't think I need to spend much time talking about this. It needs no introduction. Um, this game is just one of those wow factor games for me of the NES era. It was just a really, really well-balanced game. Really fun gameplay. Not too difficult, but challenging enough to give you something to chew on. The graphics were really, really bright and colorful. The ability to you know, take out the bosses and then steal their abilities and then have this whole library of different weapons to choose from um, at your whim um, that have different levels of effect effectiveness against different enemies. I, I just thought that was really, really fun, um, 
really memorable and uh it's just a very well done game very nice music um very emblematic of the best of of that time in on the platform of the nes so um it's really the funny thing is though is i never played the original mega man game i remember seeing mega man 2 being really hyped up in magazines and things like that of on the lead up to its release and it was Mega Man 2 is my introduction to Mega Man and uh that Christmas my my cousin got it and uh we played played a lot of that game and um and I liked it so much that of course I had to get my hands on my own copy when I got home. I can't remember how I did it probably sweet talked parents into buying it or maybe I saved up money from delivering newspapers or something but I did get a copy and um and played through it um it's interesting how you have to kind of strategize what order you do the stages in so uh you know i i, I always used to start with metal man because that metal blade was such an effective weapon on so many different screens so you take that and you acquire different weapons as you defeat different bosses and different bosses require certain weapons from the other guys that are most effective against them so you know really fun um i, I played through the game from start to finish um not too long ago, uh, maybe a year, two years ago. Um, and, you know, it really brought me back. I mean, it was, uh, I, st- I still had the touch. I was able to get through it without too, without too much trouble and without too much reliance on cheating with save states. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great one. I, and I never really played many of the other. I've played Mega Man 3. Um, I, I've dabbled with the others but i never really got into any of the others not that i think they're bad games uh, but i think i kind of moved away from nes before i got a chance to really get into many of the other ones number six we have super mario brothers 2 by nintendo 1988 now this is one of those games that's kind of divisive some of you are probably groaning Others are probably going, finally, someone else who agrees with me. Um, I think that I don't really need to explain the history of this game. Everyone's heard it a hundred times. It was um, not originally a Mario game. The uh, original Super Mario Bros. 2 was basically just used the exact same engine as the original Super Mario Bros. game. You know, same look and feel, same graphics, but just had more expanded stages, more difficulty. And um, Nintendo of America playtested that game, and they didn't like it. They thought it was too difficult. They thought it wasn't enough of a, a leap um, for their you know marquee franchise. They wanted something that looked a little nicer. Was something brought something a little different to the table. So they sent it back to Japan and said, "No, give us something else." Now, that game ended up being released in Japan as Super Mario Bros. 2, but in, in the U.S. or North America, it was uh, they uh, turned it away and said, we want a different game. So what they what Nintendo did was they took an already existing game um, called Doki Doki Panic. It actually has a longer name than that, I think, but um, that's what everyone calls it. And they basically put a Super Mario Bros. skin over it and... Um, you know, maybe polished it up a little bit and then shipped that as uh, Super Mario Bros. 2. And um, the rest is history. I mean, that game, it sold very well. And it was uh, one of the first games I, I wanted to get my hands on when I got an NES. And it was, um, I absolutely loved it. Uh, the 
the music just sticks in your head. The, um, the you know, being able to play as the different characters that have different strengths and weaknesses, I thought that was really novel. The graphics are really nice. It introduced some different play mechanics of, you know, pulling up the stuff out of the ground and throwing it. Um, I just, no, it's just a really great game. I, I like all the classic Mario games. Um, so I'm not trying to start like a, a class war here, but I, I think, um, if I had to pick one, then Super Mario Brothers 2 is, is the one I enjoyed the most. Number five, we have Cobra Triangle by Rare, 1989. Now this is a game that I've probably said this already on the podcast at some point, but this game, in my opinion, whenever somebody talks about, you know, on in online forums or whatever, brings up, what do you think are some underrated games? This is always the first one that comes to mind. I say underrated because I don't ever really hear anyone talk about it. I don't, you know, I think a lot of people just aren't even familiar with it. They'd look at it as just some, you know, you know, some title that came out for the NES, uh, you know, amid the, you know, vast quantities of games that just flooded the shelves at the time, and it's probably just mediocre, and I don't know, maybe it's not for everybody, but I think it's just a really nicely polished, um, versatile, fun game. Like, every screen, what it is, is it's um, your boat has a graphical style similar to RC Pro-Am. And you power the boat moving around different courses and obstacles and you can shoot your weapons. And the interesting thing is that every screen kind of has a different objective. So on one screen, you might have to get from point A to point B within a certain amount of time. The next screen, you might have to protect a certain number of, of humans from the enemies. Uh, trying to kill them. Um, another screen, you might have to uh, fight a boss. And then throughout all of this, you've got these power-ups. You can make your boat faster. You can get more, you know, different missiles. And it's got like kind of like a Gradius-style power-up system where you, you collect these pods and a, a little meter at the bottom is highlighting something. And it jumps to the next block every time you pick up a pod. And then you you hit the, the button to select or to activate whatever one is currently highlighted and you can, so you can kind of strategize how you want to upgrade your, your boat. Very, very fun game. Um, really smooth and polished for, for the NES. I highly recommend any, uh, anybody who enjoys NES games who has not tried this one to check it out. Number four, we have Kaboom by Activision 1981 for Atari 2600. Now, this one is very simple. <laughs> you are a stack of buckets at the bottom of the screen, and you are catching bombs that are falling from the top of the screen by moving back and forth in a twi twitchy-like manner using the paddle controls in the Atari 2600. The game is a kind of shameless ripoff of... Uh, a late 70s arcade game called Avalanche, but it's not a direct port. So I guess it makes it onto this list through a technicality. Because frankly, it's, for all intents and purposes, the same game, but it, it's 
there are some differences. It's different enough that um, it's its own game. And really, there's not much to say about it other than it's just really simple. It's really addictive. Um, unless you're really, really, really good at it, um, you can play through, you know, a turn on this game it, within a matter of a few minutes. You don't need very much time to play it. You can pick it up and play it for 10 minutes. Um, and um, it, it, it's very frantic, and it will test your ability to not go cross-eyed. <laughs> um, I remember my parents used to, to watch my brother and I play this game, and they just watched those things zipping back and forth and us being able to catch all the all the bombs, and they would just laugh at how crazy it looked, and they're like, to this day, they they still find it funny. Um, and they still, you know, mention it once in a while. It's, um, it's a very well-known, very beloved game for the system. So, uh, I guess there's not really much more I need to say about it. Um, but if you are new to Atari 2600 and you want to see what types of basic addictive gameplay were, were possible on that platform, then you definitely do not want to miss Kaboom. Number three, we have Enduro by Activision, Atari 2600, 1983. This was the original racing game for me. I mean, I know it's not the original racing game in history, but for, for me, it's the first one I ever really liked. Um, you know, Indy 500 is okay, but it's not really a, much of a racing game. Um, and and it's not much fun without another player. Um, pole position, eh, on the 2600, and I'm, I don't know, never thought it was very good, besides that that game is a an arcade port and not eligible for discussion here. Enduro kind of has you in this highly implausible scenario where you've got this car that's whipping around road courses with hundreds and hundreds of other cars, um, and the the weather conditions are changing, the lighting conditions are changing, and you're basically going through a day, and you have a full day, not like a full day, but like a, a, a video game version of a full day, to pass a certain number of cars. And so you're, you're just whipping around, going as fast as you can, riding that edge of being too fast, because if you go too fast, it gets too hard to control. And but but uh, at the same time trying to keep up the pace that will allow you to pass enough cars in the time time available. If you smash into a car, then you of course lose a whole bunch of progress. All these cars start passing you, and then you gotta then you gotta pass those ones all over again, and you fall behind. And every level, the penalty for smashing into a car gets worse and worse. So the, the first screen, you smash into a car, yeah, only you know, two or three, four cars will pass you few screens in maybe say level five six you know you, you crash and then you know dozens of cars are going to zing by so it becomes uh progressively more and more difficult it's very tense it's very edge of your seat um but when you get in the groove and you're passing those cars and um you're making some really good progress it's really it's really kind of one of those classic rush sensations of of playing you know retro games so another thing i like about the game is the it takes really good advantage of the Atari 2600 um, 
you know, the, the sound effects on, on that system with the really guttural kind of raw, raw sounds. Um, the, the, with the engine sound of your car is just revving and revving and sounds, it doesn't really sound like a car, but it just sounds like a cool, scary machine going through the gears. Very cool. And it's, um, it's a game that really was built from the ground up to run on the Atari 2600. So, I mean, it might have taken inspiration from certain arcade games or whatever, but you can tell the game was, it was, it came to be on the 2600. So it was, it wasn't a port from the arcade. It's not from the Commodore 64. It's not any of that. It's, uh, um, it was developed for this platform. So it, it works around the platform's biggest shortcomings to make really tasty game experience. Number two, we have Pressure Cooker by Activision on the Atari 2600, 1983. So you can see what you can probably guess what the theme is here for the top four, right? Um, this game is a, another kind of unsung hero for me. I, I just think this game is, um, you know, it takes again great advantage of the Atari 2600. It it's built for the system. It's built with all of its the system's limitations in mind. It works around them to beautiful effect. Um, you're basically a cook in a kitchen. You've got a shorter, like you're a shorter cook. You've got this list of orders of hamburgers to fill. Um, different customers want different sets of toppings on their burger, so you got to keep looking down to the uh, the order form at the bottom of the screen and um, catching the random ingredients that are flying at you from the right side of the screen and, and and placing them on the appropriate burgers, and if an ingredient comes at you that you can't use, you gotta, you know, send it back. And if you let it splat on the floor or on your face, then you, uh, you know, you're penalized for that. And you just gotta really keep keep on your toes by checking the bottom of the screen, checking what's coming at you, keeping track of what toppings have been placed on what burgers. And then when you build a a burger uh, to completion, you gotta pay attention. Um, to where you got to place it after that, because then you got to walk off the bottom of the screen and drop the burger in one of three compartments that are color coded. Um, if you put, try to put it in the wrong one, then the burger splats and you are penalized. Um, so then, once you drop the burger in the right compartment, it goes down like a conveyor belt. You get your points, and then you got to move back up into the kitchen where the other burgers are still in progress, and you've got to that have been moving down a conveyor belt, and you've got to keep taking those toppings and building the burgers and, and on you go. And of course it gets faster and faster and more and more challenging, but, um, very, very creative, fun game. Um, visually looks very nice by the, by the standards of the system. Um, you know, it would really kind of exemplifies how, you know, at least in my opinion, Activision was just a cut above, Back then, with what they were able to do on this on on that hardware. Number one, numero uno. We've got Frostbite by Activision for the Atari 2600, 1983. Now, I said when I was listing the criteria for what will place a game on this list, um, I said it has to have demonstrated lasting power. Oh, for Frostbite, that's a big check. 
You gotta be a big favorite either then or now. Well, for me, it's it's both. Um, gut feeling, well, no problem there because Frostbite always immediately comes to mind. And nostalgia. I definitely have a lot of good memories playing this game, but it's not just that. I mean, the the frantic nature of this gameplay, how it, it's got a nice difficulty curve. Um, it's got just the right mix of familiar uh, gameplay mechanics and kind of new ideas and, uh, you know, themes. Um, I like to call it like a somewhat of a cross between Hubert and Frogger. So you're this guy called, what's his name, Frostbite Bailey. You're this, you know, bundled up guy out in the freezing cold, and you are trying to build an igloo, so you're jumping from the top of the screen down to these rows of icebergs, um, which kind of makes it like Frogger, because you're as you go down, you're dodging different styles of enemies that are whizzing by, like crabs and, um, and these big clams with teeth. And seagulls and things like that that are trying to push you off of your iceberg and kill you. Um, and it's kind of like Hubert in that you every time you land on a row of of, of ice, it turns color, and um, they you have to get all rows before they revert back to the original color. So every time you jump on a, a new row, you get a brick added to your igloo. So you got to keep jumping up and down these rows, collecting bricks for your igloo until the igloo's complete, at which point you, you find your way to the top of the screen and you jump into your igloo and you clear the screen. Of course, you have a time limit, so um, you can't take forever to do this. Um, you have to, if you, uh, if you take too long, you just lose a life. Um, and in a way, it is, in retrospect, it's kind of morbid how you, like, these enemies will push you off the icebergs into the freezing, frigid, cold water, and you watch your little character die a miserable death as his he kind of <laughs> looks up at the sky and, and and weeps in pain and suffering but you know we can uh, we can look beyond that it's um you can only get so upset about pixelated blobs right so but this game it, it really um what i like about it is it really like I said, it's got a nice difficulty curve. It really um, it starts out fairly simple, and then it, it starts to pick up speed in the difficulty department. And once you get into the later stages, um, well, not later stages, but like finding your way into the game, then it really starts speeding up. And what I find really interesting about this game is how the programmer, he... He didn't just speed up the screens and the enemies and everything. He also changed how your character controls. So in parallel, you've got everything starting to move faster on the screen. Your enemies, the icebergs. But in parallel, your player, your character's ability are also evolving. So as the screens get faster, you start to be able to jump longer distances. And you start to be able to do tricks like you can jump um, and then kind of change direction midair so you can kind of, you know, jump fake to one direction and then back the other in midair and land on the on the next row of um of ice. And it allows you to do these really kind of intricate weaving maneuvers around these enemies and you know, you just these really uh white knuckle uh spots where you're just nicking the edge of, of where you're trying to land. Um and it's very frantic and very tense. Um 
So once you get into that groove, you know those games where they're they're difficult, but when you get into a groove, it's really kind of it's kind of a rush. Um, this game is really one of those for me. Um, granted, it probably takes a fair bit of practice to get up to the, that level where you're gonna see what I'm talking about. But um, if you're willing to invest that practice, which shouldn't take too long, I mean, if you're reasonably well versed at classic style gaming, then um, you'd find your way around this one. But that is uh, that's Frostbite. Um, again, I don't think it, it has its its fans. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a, a lesser known title, but I, I I really I'm really surprised that when you see so much talk about Atari 2600 games, that it doesn't get more props um, than it does. Um, but um, it, like I said, it, I'm not saying that it, no one ever brings it up because it does definitely get mentioned. Um, but not as much as I think it deserves, but anyway, we already established that uh, this is just one person's opinion. So that's my list. That's my top ten console games. Um, yeah, maybe it's a little weird that the top four are all not only 2600 games, but all made by the same publisher, Activision. Um, and what does that say about me? Well, I guess it says that I really... Um, I, I think it's easy to say, well... I can see what's going on here. This guy, he just, he's obviously just has sentimental ties to the Atari 2600, and he's putting a whole bunch of nostalgia credit to these games, and that's why they're beating out this game and that game and this game and that game. And that would be a fair comment, but I don't think, I really don't think that's accurate. What I think it, it more speaks to for me is the fact that the reason why these games would beat out, for example, lots of NES games that some people might think deserve more to be on this list is the style of the gameplay. Um, I I like these games because they're all arcade-style games. They're all uh, arcade score-attack-type games, which is what I like. I like games that are easy to understand and play, um, and they, they're challenging um, to, you know, get high scores and and to overcome the difficulties of the game. And, um, which is, I mean, there was some of that on the NES and the Master System and the like, but a lot of, you know, right around the Super Mario, uh, Brothers era, the shift really, or the focus really shifted from this arcade score attack type game to just, you know, try to get to the end of the game and finish it type thing. And, um, just for whatever reason, that style of game just hasn't aged as well with me as the quick pick-up-and-play score-attack-type arcade games. So that, more so than the fact that, you know, Atari 2600 was, you know, one of the the big uh, uh, landmarks of my my childhood uh, game-playing, yeah, that's definitely true, but I also played NES a lot, so that doesn't really stack up. What what does stack up is the fact that right now, um, those score attack challenging type games are just over time for whatever reason they have what that's the style that I've gravitated toward I think a lot of it has to do with becoming a lot more into arcade games um and arcade games you know have these characteristics and these these Activision titles that I've named here are a lot more have a lot more in common with classic arcade games than say Castlevania and Metroid do so that, I think that's really 
what's what's going on here with me and um and again that's just me don't tell me why i'm wrong because i don't care um like i said at the beginning this is all just uh just for fun discussion purposes so that's it top 10 console games that's going to do it for this edition of the pixel advocate if you have any comments criticisms death threats feel free to email me at pixeladvocate at outlook.com you can also hit me up on twitter at pixel advocate and um hope you have a fun safe and happy halloween coming up shortly here don't forget may we all appreciate what we have today in our fleeting spare moments may we fondly reflect on our pixel perfect past bye for now (laughs) 